fighting for Bashar today, Monday, May 20th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Hezbollah fighters from Lebanon are drawn into the fight in Syria. We'll hear what that could mean for Syria's civil war. Also, a woman who fled that war to give birth here in the U.S. Now she wants to go back to rejoin her husband. My family wants me to stay because it's safer for me and for the baby. But I have no other choice. I need to go back. And later, as companies push to do more deep-sea mining, concern about the impact on oceans already stressed by climate change. And going further into disrupting the chemistry of the oceans by that sort of mining is just plain crazy. Plus, Myanmar opens up for business, but that presents concerns for the fake Walmart and KFC there. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman in Boston. This is The World. After months of stalemate, the Syrian civil war may be taking a critical turn. Forces allied with President Bashar al-Assad appear to have taken control of most districts of Qusair, a strategic town near the Lebanese border that had been held by rebels. The regime has had help in this battle from the Lebanese militant group Hezbollah. Hezbollah is now supplying fighters in support of Assad. Reports say that at least 20 Hezbollah fighters have already been killed in Qusair. The BBC's Jim Muir is in Beirut keeping tabs on the situation in Syria. He says that for both sides, control of Qusair is immensely important. For the rebels, it's a key staging post in a supply route that goes from Lebanon uh, to Homs, for example, the very key uh, city, the third biggest, and where the scene of an ongoing battle. And for the government, it's important, first of all, to interdict that, uh, but also from the point of view of uh, looking to the future, should there be a fragmentation of Syria, and should it break up into small statelets or entities, an Alawite entity belonging to the ruling minority which to which President Bashar al-Assad belongs along the coast uh, would then be linked if uh, Hezbollah and the regime control that area, would it be linked directly to the Bakar Valley of Lebanon where uh, Hezbollah is, is largely in control. And Jim, do you know if these Hezbollah fighters are in Syria at the behest of anyone and how they're actually coordinating with, with Syrian commanders if they're fighting side by side? Oh, there's no doubt that there is absolute coordination there. I mean, Hassan Nasrallah has said that. I mean, it's well known that there is a kind of three-point axis between Iran, Syria, and Hezbollah. They call it the axis of resistance. That's their own word for it. So they are very much bound up as as allies. And there's there's no way that Hezbollah would be fighting kind of on its own, doing its own thing in Syria. It's very much part of part and parcel of the of the government or regime. Uh, effort and uh, it would not be surprising um, one isn't privy to such things but if one were in the central uh, operations room of the Syrian armed forces it would not be at all surprising to me to find uh, both Iranians and Hezbollahis there because they are so much allied and so much tied together in this uh, effort to fend off what they see as a fatal threat to one of the key elements in that uh, so-called axis of resistance. Jim, how significant do you think it is to the Syria conflict that there are real live Hezbollah boots on the ground right now? 
for them to be involved actually in a government offensive on a town like Corsair uh, would be a new step in the sense that it, it would mark a kind of deepening involvement and perhaps even in that particular area a kind of government reliance on Hezbollah to help uh, to help it score a victory that it might otherwise find difficult to do because Hezbollah does have a lot of experience in this kind of guerrilla street warfare, uh, whereas the Syrian army is more set up as a conventional uh, field field uh, army for for confronting equally conventional armies like the Israelis. Um, but the regime at the moment does seem to be on a bit of a high. It is uh, pushing forward in, in some areas. But this kind of tricky street fighting is something where Hezbollah can definitely help, and uh, that's why it's doing it. Too much to say that the tide has suddenly turned uh, in Assad's favor? In um, in in a way, yes, I think it has. That doesn't mean to say it's definitive, though. Um, the rebels in some areas, especially for, for example around Dara in the south, have been complaining that they've had to pull out of areas under attack from the government forces because they haven't got the arms and ammunition to fend them off uh, because the Jordanians were not allowing the release of them and, and the flow from Qatar and elsewhere had stopped. So um, it could be that, uh, for example, if the international conference that the Russians and Americans are both talking about uh, for early June, uh, if it should fail, and should American policy then harden, uh, and the Americans then decide to open the floodgates to arms supplies to the rebels, we could see that uh, situation turn around fairly quickly. Do you think that this, uh, the, the presence of Hezbollah there actually makes a more fertile ground in Syria for uh, a more fertile and inviting ground in Syria for foreign fighters, uh, for the opponents uh, to Assad? Uh, foreign fighters of many different stripes. I think it's a situation where both sides are kind of justifying each other. I mean, the the rebels are saying, look, Hezbollah's there, Iran is there, the Russians are providing arms. Uh, meanwhile, the, the regime and its supporters are saying, look, all these jihadis and foreigners flooding in there. And it's a situation where each justifies the other. So the more Hezbollah get, gets involved, the more difficult it is, for example, um, for people to say, well, the other side shouldn't have outside help as well. The BBC's Jim Yor speaking with us from Beirut. Thank you, Jim. You're most welcome. The fighting in Syria is becoming more internationalized, even without the official intervention of other governments. The situation is also exerting a pull on Syrians who aren't there. One of them, Alam, a 28-year-old medical resident from Syria. Alam asks us not to use her last name. She did her training in Syria where she met her husband. He's also a doctor. Today she lives in Brooklyn, New York, but her husband does not. And she now feels caught between two options, staying in New York or returning to Syria where the war continues to rage. She told her story to reporter Yal Evan Orr of Feet in Two Worlds, a project that brings the work of immigrant journalists to public radio. The first thing Ahlam does when she wakes up in Brooklyn is check out Syrian Facebook pages. She wants to find out whether there's been more fighting in Ariha, her hometown in Idlib province. Then she calls her husband. Ahlam left Syria late last year when she was about eight months pregnant. I came here to, to have my baby here. It's safer. And there is no safe place to give birth over there. And now I'm with family. But the thing is, my husband is over there. And he cannot come here. So what are we going to do? Ahlam says there's not much they can do since the U.S. closed its embassy in Damascus last year. Her husband can't apply for asylum while he's still in Syria. And getting him a green card to work in the U.S. would take years. I think there is no way to bring him here. 
because I asked a lawyer and he told me you can't do anything but to apply for him. And I applied for him, but it usually takes like two years. Ahlum went on maternity leave from her job at a hospital in Lib City. She says it took her many hours to get there every day with all the roadblocks. And she says the hospital only treats supporters of President Bashar al-Assad. It's like a normal day. We get too many soldiers to treat. And when they bring some soldier who's dead, they start shooting inside the hospital. She's not a supporter of Assad in the Syrian army. So she worries that some of her patients at the hospital look at her with suspicion. But not working is getting to her. I keep looking on the internet. My mind is always thinking, what's going on in Syria, what's going on in Syria. So if I'm working, that would be better. But it's more frustrating for me to sit and to see the news. While she watches the news, Ahlam weighs her options. Her maternity leave has expired. And if she stays here, she will lose her residency. She'd have to wait years before she could practice in the U.S. And she doesn't know when she'll see her husband again or when he'll finally get to see their daughter. But her family is pressing her to stay. My family wants me to stay because it's safer for me and for the baby. But I have no other choice. I need to go back. Ahlam is trying to make arrangements, but even the logistics are complicated. She's having trouble getting a passport for her daughter. First, she needed a husband's signature for the papers. That's finally come through, but the passport still hasn't arrived. So even though she's made the decision to go, she's still waiting. For The World, I'm Yael Van O, Brooklyn. Do democracy right and you too could benefit. That's one of the carrots the president of Myanmar has dangling in front of him. President Tensein is in Washington this week for a historic meeting with President Obama. Not long ago, Tensein was on a travel blacklist. But in the past two years, Myanmar has undergone dramatic political change that pleases the White House. And Tensein is hoping that'll mean more U.S. investment in Myanmar. Not so fast, though. American companies are going to face some challenges in Myanmar. Patrick Wynn is Southeast Asia correspondent with Global Post and has been covering the changes there. First of all, Patrick, a number of companies will face uh, some interesting, we'll say challenges if they go. Walmart, for example, they're going to find in downtown Yangon another store called Walmart. And there are other examples of knockoff store names. But let's just take the, the giant Walmart because it's a good one. Have you been to the Walmart in Yangon and Burma and what's being sold there? Yes, I have been to the quote Walmart unquote It's on a dingy street where there's an open sewer, uh, is a one-room shop. Uh, Stray dogs are kind of flitting in and out, and there are only two types of items on sale inside there, washing machines and mobile phones. Right, so it really has nothing to do with the real Walmarts. The the woman who founded this fake Walmart in Yangon, why did she call it Walmart? She had heard of it from her brother, who uh, is a politically active guy, and a lot of times the politically active groups in Myanmar get support from the U.S., but she did recognize that it had some cachet in a country where American products haven't been able to be legally imported for decades. And Patrick, in your article for Global Post, you also talk about a Kentucky Fried Chicken that looks a lot from its signage like the real thing, though instead of a spork... They give you French fries and you have to eat them with chopsticks. How many of these knockoff stores are there in just in Yangon? In Yangon, there are many. I mean, you're not going to see them on every block. But once you start to get to know the city, as I have over the past three years, 
you start to notice them. You, there's a fake KFC that arrived not too long ago with a very convincing sign. So convincing, in fact, I'm sure that they got a real one from somewhere, maybe some <laughs> really? KFC that closed down. It was so convincing that the U.S. Embassy actually tweeted their arrival. It said something to the effect of, ooh, finger licking good, a KFC in Yangon. The whole thing was totally fake. Wow, even the U.S. Embassy was punked by this. Yes, there's a Best Buy in Yangon where um, is a little cement-walled shop on a dusty street, and it's filled with Halo for PlayStation 3, iPad cases, Beats by Dre headphones. And all of these products were actually purchased by the store owner's son-in-law, who is forced to carry over giant boxes every time he comes home full of stuff he's bought at Best Buy or perhaps Radio Shack or wherever. Do you, do you get the sense, Patrick, that Western companies are going to really have a hard time with these fake stores in Burma when, when they arrive? I think Western conglomerates will have to do a lot of out-of-court settlements, and that's a very polite way of saying payoffs, because the local person, they feel aggrieved. You know, they, they threw up this logo, but yeah, they also threw down the capital and the labor into getting the shop up and running, and now their local people know it by Best Buy or KFC. The the woman who runs that uh, fake Walmart, I mean, her reaction was pretty amusing. Yes. She simply does not understand why some Walmart she's never seen before should be able to come in and tell her to change her sign. Oh, maybe they can open their own Walmart, a.k.a. the real Walmart, up the street somewhere but she doesn't see any reason why they would have the right to tell her to change it. And that's because these ideas are just uncommon in Myanmar at this point. And we have to remember this is a country in which basic liberties weren't allowed. So the rights of a big conglomerate from America to protect their image, their sign, their brand name is not taken very seriously. So the real KFC and the real Best Buy are going to have to come in and settle things quietly. I don't think it will look very good if they start picking on shopkeepers in a very poor country, it's not going to be good PR for them. Patrick Wynn, a reporter with Global Post. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much, Marco. Drop by the knockoff Walmart in Yangon or grab a fake bucket of fake Colonel Sanders chicken. Patrick Wynn's real pictures of the Burmese version of a few iconic American brands are at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Last week's elections in Pakistan marked a historic moment for democracy there, the first direct transfer of power between two democratically elected governments. A week later, that historic transition has been tarnished. A senior official with the PTI party, which had performed well in the vote, was assassinated. Zara Shahid Hussein worked for Imran Khan, the leader of the PTI, and a former cricket star who is convalescing from a campaign trail fall. Reporter Fahad Desmouk in Karachi says the slain politician did not keep a high profile. She was a founder member of the party. So the people, the original core group of the party knew her very well. And she was meant to be uh, you know, one of the strategists of the party, but wasn't a very public figure. And she was murdered outside of her home on Saturday night. The aftermath of that has been that uh, Imran Khan 
uh, from his hospital bed tweeted uh, on that same night that he held Altaf Hussein, the leader of the MQM, another party which has its stronghold in Karachi. Imran Khan accused him of directly being responsible for uh, for the murder. And that sort of sparked or rather has aggravated an already ongoing war of words and war of protests between the two parties. So our listeners may have an, a certain image of Imran Khan, a uh, strikingly handsome cricket star turned politician. But this idea that he's in his hospital bed, he had this accident uh, just prior to the elections about 10 days ago. He's in his hospital bed tweeting about who he says is responsible for this murder. Is that how politics is conducted these days in Pakistan? To some degree, in Karachi, the MQM, this party, has been uh, regarded as almost the owners of Karachi since it's uh, come to power over the past few decades. And it has somewhat of a, a reputation of using strong-arm tactics and of being unchallenged politically in the city. Now, right now, uh, Imran Khan's uh, party and uh, its rival, the MQM, they're holding sit-ins in Karachi, mostly peaceful rallies. But how stable do things feel to you right now? So far, luckily, things have been fairly peaceful. Karachi has this ability to burst in flames where vehicles are satellite and business shuts down, and then it comes back to life the next day or two days later. Fahad, I mean, just finally, I mean, with the election 10 days ago and, and this uh, shooting this weekend, is there a sense in Pakistan that the democratic process is advancing, is progressing? Yes, certainly so. As you know, these are historic elections in the sense that this is the first time that an elected civilian government has handed over to another elected civilian government. There have been widespread claims uh, of rigging um, across the country. But by and large, people are accepting many of the results and the process of transfer seems to be going on without too much trouble. And so that's very significant. Reporter Fahad Desmouk in Karachi. Thanks very much, Fahad. Thanks, Marco. Now, way down at the bottom of the sea, there are riches waiting to be hauled up. And we're not just talking sunken Spanish galleons. We're talking minerals, billions of tons of them that line much of the ocean floor. Countries and companies around the world are staking their claims. And one of the first to get the okay to explore is a British firm that got its first taste of what's down there through a famous Cold War caper. Here's Christopher Worth in London. The world couldn't afford to send me out to sea for this story. But for Adrian Glover, a marine biologist at London's Natural History Museum, the furthest depths of the seas are familiar territory. Just to sort of give you a quick visual tour, this is an image of the abyssal Pacific Ocean floor taken at about 4,000 meters, so off the coast of the United States. Glover shows me a photograph of a flat, seemingly barren terrain nearly two and a half miles down. The central Pacific abyss is an area almost the size of the continental landmass of the USA. And it's an area where the seafloor is carpeted in these little potato-sized accretions. Those accretions are known as manganese nodules. Glover hands me what looks like a lump of coal. This is a manganese nodule that I picked up from the Central Pacific. Oh, so it's actually it's much lighter than I thought it would be. They're quite light and they're quite crumbly. They're peculiar things that were first studied in the 1960s, and people very quickly realized that they're rich in minerals. And not just manganese. The nodules also include copper, cobalt, nickel, and rare earths, essential in the production of everything from high-grade steel to smartphones and tablet computers. The global appetite for these sorts of minerals is growing all the time. 
That's Stephen Ball of Lockheed Martin, a defense contractor that hopes to be among the first to get into the deep-sea mining game. Lockheed has a long, strange history in the development of the industry. It's an elaborate tale that involves a top-secret CIA mission during the Cold War. And oddly enough, Howard Hughes, the eccentric American billionaire. Howard Hughes was contracted to go look for a lost Russian submarine. A nuclear-armed submarine that sank in the deep Pacific in 1968. Ball says Lockheed helped raise the submarine in the 70s to collect intelligence on the Soviet military. This archival film shows a burial at sea for the Soviet sailors recovered in the covert operation. The officers and men of this ill-fated USSR submarine, whom we honor here today, have reached their journey's end. And here's the connection. The official story at the time was that Hughes, working with Lockheed, was searching for manganese nodules. Hence, that's how we came to be doing this surveying of the ocean floor. Which did indeed give the company detailed data on the nodules. It's only now that mining the deep sea finally looks economically viable. And earlier this year, the International Seabed Authority granted a British subsidiary of Lockheed an exploration license for a huge stretch of the Pacific. UK Seabed Resources, a wholly owned subsidiary of Lockheed Martin UK, will assemble a deep seabed manganese nodule recovery and processing system. This computer animated video shows vehicles roving across the seafloor, scooping up nodules like a vacuum cleaner. From there, they'd be sent up pipes to a ship on the surface. But this type of mining raises a raft of environmental concerns. To begin with, although the bottom of the deep ocean looks barren, it's actually teeming with life. And Rod Fujita of the Environmental Defense Fund says no one knows how long it would take those ecosystems to bounce back from mining. The recovery rates are likely to be very, very, very long because growth rates are very low down there. In fact, some ecologists are very blunt on the matter. That mining that they're proposing is highly destructive. George Woodwell is with the Woods Hole Research Center in Massachusetts. He says deep-sea mining could affect large parts of the oceans at a time when they're already under stress from climate change. We already have major changes in oceanic chemistry. And going further into disrupting the chemistry of the oceans by that sort of mining is just plain crazy. Lockheed Martin says it takes environmental concerns seriously. In line with international rules, the company says it's collaborating with scientists like Adrian Glover at London's Natural History Museum to study its patch of the seafloor before it mines. In fact, some marine biologists see teaming up with industry now as an opportunity to lay effective ground rules before full-scale mining gets underway. We have to get it right. We don't want 100 years from now conservation scientists to say, oh, my God, what were they thinking? Cindy Lee Vandover of Duke University has worked with a company that plans to mine another type of mineral-rich deep-sea ecosystem known as hydrothermal vents. But that's not to say she doesn't feel conflicted. This is a hard thing for me because I'm a tree hugger. I've spent my life studying these animals. On the other hand, pragmatically, it's not a, is it right or wrong? It's I think it's going to happen, and I think it can happen in a way that we can get the minerals and still protect those animals. If it is going to happen, it's because there could be lots of money to be made, more than $60 billion over 30 years for U.K. businesses alone, according to Lockheed Martin. The company hopes to realize that bonanza in the next decade and plans to begin environmental research in the Pacific this summer. For The World, I'm Christopher Wirth, London. This is PRI. (music) 
I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, the real-life nightmare for many young women in Asia. Their boyfriends or husbands take them across an international border, lock them in a room, and then leave. And then the madam comes in and says, guess what? Your husband just sold you to me, and you're going to prostitute yourself seven to ten guys a day, uh, seven days a week, and you're going to do what I say. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a $20,000 grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. No one knows exactly how many people in the world are trafficked every year across international borders. The estimates range into the millions. But here's something we do know. Women and girls are frequently the targets, and all too often they're sold into prostitution. In a moment, we'll hear about the situation in Asia, where trafficking is rampant in several countries. But first, we focus on just one case, a Vietnamese girl and her savior. Here's reporter Philip Martin of WGBH. It's mid-morning. A light rain is falling. The car I'm in weaves through chaotic traffic. Also in the car, two teenage girls. One girl I'll call Kui. She's 17. She and her friend are all smiles, but don't let their laughter deceive you. What they've been through in recent months is horrific. Kui and her friend were kidnapped, beaten, raped, and sold into slavery by human trafficking rings in China. The girls found their freedom with the help of the guy sitting next to me. He's Tanak Van, a lawyer for the anti-trafficking organization Blue Dragon. He describes how he rescued Kui just a few days ago. She was uh, locked up in um, Guangdong province in China. And uh, one night, the police, Chinese police rang me and asked for my help to rescue this girl. Right now we're heading north out of Hanoi to Kui's village. Now it's hard to hear above the din of the noise in the car, but Van Ta tells me that Kui told him that on the first night of her kidnapping... She was raped by 47 men. 47 men. It was two years ago. She was 16 when she met a man in his 20s while visiting Hanoi. She says they met in a cafe and she was smitten. They dated for six months and the man six years her senior said he loved her. One day they took a road trip north and crossed into China. It was then that he handed her over to sex traffickers. Van Ta says he still doesn't know much about this fake boyfriend. And we don't know why and who trafficked her to China yet. About 600 kilometers from border. And I have been there to rescue the girl. We've been on the road now for three hours, and the lanes have gotten narrower. In a short while, we'll arrive at Kui's home village. She suddenly grows quiet and stares out the window toward the rice fields. Kui is heading back to the poverty that she had longed to escape, says Van Ta. It is poor, uneducated women who are the main victims of these scams. In the few minutes before we arrive at her village, Kui tells me what happened to her in China. Kui was raped and beaten constantly. The beatings grew worse when she decided to write down the names of all of the Vietnamese girls in the brothel. Six months into her ordeal, Kui escaped with two other girls. 
A sympathetic policeman telephoned Van Ta, and he and a Vietnamese cop crossed the border posing as tourists to bring her home. We've arrived. We make our way through a thicket of trees. Quee's mother meets us. Mother and daughter hug, and we all quickly move toward the house, lest neighbors notice and question. In the one-room home, the mother makes tea and, and every few minutes, touches her daughter's face and smiles. Van Ta translates for her. Kui's mother has eight children and says other people's daughters have also disappeared from this village. Her own sister was kidnapped many years ago, and she has heard rumors of her sighting in southern China. She fears for the next generation, including for her own grandchildren. As the mother speaks, Kui's father appears, carrying a bike through the trees. He hugs his daughter, and soon after, Van Ta and I take our leave. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Back on the road, Van Ta's mobile phone beeps. It's a text message from China from a young prostituted woman using the cell phone of a sympathetic customer. Van Ta reads her message aloud. Please help me. I am in China, and, and, but I'm not sure where it is. I asked Van Ta what message he's writing back to her. And I said, I will come to help you, but it takes time. And she said, yes, and please keep me in touch. Uh, and I said, okay, you know, don't worry, we'll find a way to help you. Within hours, I'll be dropped off in Hanoi, and Van Ta, a modern-day abolitionist, will find his way to the Chinese border to try to rescue yet another victim of this underground trade. For the world, I'm Philip Martin. We have photos from this story at our website, theworld.org. That report was produced in collaboration with the Schuster Institute for Investigative Journalism and the International Center for Journalists. Matt Friedman works to end sex trafficking. He's worked with various U.N. agencies tackling the issue and is now with the counter-trafficking organization Liberty Asia. Matt Friedman is based in Bangkok. He says police corruption is a problem in many Asian countries. In some areas, you have law enforcement that not only are uh, taking uh, bribes to not do anything, they are sometimes the owners of the, the businesses themselves. What drives, actually, the trafficking between Vietnam into China and Cambodia? Well, part of the reason why trafficking happens from one country to the other is that you can disorient a person and put them into a situation where they don't have an understanding of the culture or the environment. They don't speak the same language, and as a result, if they try to run away, they have nobody to talk to. And oftentimes, the authorities will kind of pick the person up and put them into an immigration uh, location and then send them back. So it kind of covers the the traffickers themselves. So you're talking about government immigration officials. They're seeing this stuff happening before their eyes, and they don't take any action? Well, actually, uh, interestingly, the government of China has uh, been a lot more proactive in recent years in terms of having what they called uh, uh, China Storm, which is an effort to kind of train law enforcement to go in and 
be sympathetic to these types of cases and to then go through a process and a procedure to rescue people and then get them home. Right. So what's the Vietnamese government doing to respond to this uh, tragic situation? Well, the Vietnamese government is involved in kind of an alliance called COMMIT that brings all of the six Mekong countries from Southeast Asia together. This includes China, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, and Myanmar. And basically what they try to do is to have bilateral agreements between China and themselves, between Cambodia and themselves, and other kind of related countries to see whether or not they can develop systems that would allow for both governments to talk to each other when these cases come up. And in Asia, I'm told that 80% of human trafficking cases involve labor trafficking. But some of the worst examples of exploitation take place in brothels, nail salons, massage parlors. How do you go about kind of doing the triage of human trafficking abuses? Well, I think that the figures that we would use would be the ILO ones. It's about 75% in forced labor. There's 11.7 million people in what would be identified as forced labor, which we would say also is a, is a form of a trafficking about 4.5 million people around the world that would be in uh, forced prostitution. For the most part, when it comes to the sex industry, law enforcement is often better equipped to kind of go after the criminals associated with that. Whereas in the forced labor, the private sector has to take some responsibility for identifying a role in the fact that a certain number of these uh, companies that are like sweatshops and so forth feed into supply chains that result in eventually us getting uh, genes or electronics or telephones that, that have some associated with forced labor type conditions. So just understanding that that exists uh, and getting the private sector to ensure that these slavery type situations are in place needs to be kind of one of the things that we really have to focus on. Matt Friedman, a sex trafficking expert based in Bangkok. I asked him, by the way, how he got involved in counter-trafficking. I was a public health person, and I was uh, in Nepal and hearing of all these young girls that were 13 to 15 years old that were HIV positive. So I started going to the shelters and asking them uh, what happened, and I kept hearing horrific story after horrific story. Often the traffickers would go all the way into the villages, sometimes marry the girls, say they're going to take them back to Kathmandu. Instead, they take them to Mumbai. They put them in a room, and they say, honey, I'll be back in a few minutes. They go off and they get their money and go back to Nepal. And then the madam comes in and says, oh, my gosh, uh, guess what? Your husband just showed you to me and you're going to prostitute yourself uh, seven to ten guys a day, uh, seven days a week. And you're going to do what I say. Her response is, well, I'm a good Hindu girl. I'm not going to do that. I'll kill myself. The madam goes back and says, well, if you do that, basically, I'm going to go and kill your family or something like that to Mm -hmm. tie her into it. They then bring in professional rapists. They'll rape her over and over and over again to break her will, and then she's put on the line. For me, I heard these stories over and over again, but it wasn't until I actually went to Mumbai. I was uh, asked to kind of do some public health checks in the brothels. I was with a police officer. A young 11-year-old traffic victim saw me, literally ran up to me and wrapped herself around me and said, save me, save me. You know, I looked down at this girl. She was a child wearing a dress that was five sizes too big. I looked at the police officer and said, okay, we're taking her out. He said, no, you're not. They'll kill us before they'll let us go. So to make a long story short, we left, came back, and she was obviously gone. We lost her. For me, that was my big test as a person who should have found a way of getting her out of there. I wasn't able to. I failed miserably. And from that point on, an activist was born. Matt Friedman, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. A most particular kind of flower is next.
Today's GeoQuiz comes in at number six. We're looking for the sixth largest island in the world. Greenland tops the list of big islands, followed by New Guinea, Borneo, Madagascar, and Canada's Baffin Island. And next at number six is the island we're looking for in western Indonesia. So can you name this place? It's known for active volcanoes and tropical rainforests. And one more thing, stinky stuff. They love the durian there. You know, that fruit that when you crack open at the husk, well, it smells either delightfully fragrant or like raw sewage, depending on your point of view. The people of this island also love a huge flower that grows wild in the local rainforest. And guess what? This flower stinks real bad, too. So bad that botanist Joan Leonard holds her nose when she's close up to it. Leonard's going to reveal the answer to the GeoQuiz, but not before she fills us a bit more in on this strange flower that she and her colleagues at Ohio State University's Botanical Garden cultivated from seed. We have the rare Titan arum or corpse flower, and it does have the stench of a rotting corpse, thus the name corpse flower. The Titan arum. Yes. So we've got some photos of the Titan arum in bloom at theworld.org. Describe its features, petals and the rest of it. Well, actually, it's the largest inflorescence in the world, and an inflorescence is a floral structure composed of many smaller flowers. The flowers are actually deep inside the structure, so seeing the individual flowers is somewhat difficult unless you cut a little access hole to see them. The structure is very large. Ours reached six feet tall. It has a tall spike in the center, and that spike is what produces the smell to bring in the insect pollinators. And then it has a large frilly skirt of a deep burgundy color, about four feet across, and that makes kind of a funnel shape to help broadcast the odor that brings in the pollinators. Right. And how bad does it smell? I mean, why do you say it smells like a corpse? Is there anybody who can verify the corpse smell of this flower? Actually, earlier this week, we had a visitor who works at the morgue nearby, and she was able to verify for us that, yes, indeed, it has that odor. Wow. So the smell uh, will accumulate in the greenhouse, start to head down the hallway. And so folks who are uh, a good 100 or 200 feet away um, can get a whiff of it on the wind and know something's going on. Okay. So smell aside, would you say it's a, a pretty flower? It's actually gorgeous color. It's a deep burgundy. It looks almost like a crushed velvet. And the smell is supposed to attract pollinators. What insects are attracted to the smell of a corpse? So just like you would find on roadkill, you're going to have flies that are attracted, carrion beetles, the types of insects that would come in and look for a meal on a dead animal. So it must be kind of weird to see a gorgeous flower and then, whoa, what does this thing smell like? It is quite the contrast. So where in the world does the Titan Aram grow in the wild? It is native to the island of Sumatra in Indonesia. Okay, so listeners, if you answered Sumatra, you got the GeoQuiz right. Is it a rare flower? I mean, is it an endangered species? It is not on the endangered species yet. It's on the threatened species list. Uh, the habitat is quickly disappearing due to illegal logging and the expansion of agriculture. So right now, the best hope for preservation of this species is through conservatories and botanical gardens. You ever seen anybody with striking reaction to this flower? Well, often, as soon as they'll smell it before they see it. 
because the it's wafting down the hall so um yeah they grab their nose and they're like oh is that it and then when they come around the corner and they actually see the bloom they step back for a second and, and catch their breath and like wow well we've got pictures at the world.org <laughs> botanist joan leonard telling us about the titan arum flower at ohio state university and giving us the answer to the geoquiz today which is sumatra joan nice to speak thank you thank you very much margo The awful smell of that corpse flower didn't repel listeners from answering today's geo-texting game. Vignesh in Tampa, Florida, MJ in Simpsonville, South Carolina, and Sean in Hollister, California, all held their noses and came up with the island of Sumatra. Thanks for playing to one and all, and to get on board next time, just text GEOQUIZ, one word, to 69866. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. I like to garden, and one of the rules I employ as a fairly orthodox gardener is, if it's not a plant or dirt, I don't want it in the garden, which pits me against the organizers of Britain's Chelsea Flower Show. For the first time in its 100 years, the renowned event will allow ornamental figures in the displays. That's code for gnomes, as in garden gnomes, those little bearded statues of short men with pointy hats. Yep, at this prestigious celebration of superior horticulture, Garden gnomes now rank. Jekka McVicker is very pleased. She's a council member of the Royal Horticultural Society and head of floral judging. Ms. McVicker actually smuggled in a gnome to the flower show back in 2009. I'm an exhibitor, you see, and in 2009, on the Sunday, I mean, a lot of us exhibitors have our mascots, and mine happened to be a gnome, a very tasteful gnome in green, actually. And he was fishing, and it, he made front page of the Evening Standard. But it was before judging. This year, the gnomes have been decorated by celebrities, including Elton John. And as McVicker told the BBC, that one's a looker. Oh, brilliant. It's all spangles. It's got beautiful glasses on and glittery head. I mean, did you really expect a modest gnome from Elton John? Now, when the Chelsea Flower Show is over, the gnomes will be auctioned off on eBay to support school gardening programs, which is pretty nice. Now, a colleague at our London office today wondered whether we in the U.S. are fans of the Little Garden Guys. I didn't answer, but our web team thought we here in the U.S. didn't want to be out gnomes. So let's show them some American gnomes. You can upload your gnome pics to theworld.org or tweet us at PRI The World. And here's to healthy gardens for all, including, yes, even gnomes. Finally, every now and then, we ask our reporters who are on assignment overseas to go to local record shops in the places they're at to find out what's hot there. So we sent the world's Jason Margolis to a store in Sao Paulo, Brazil, to look around for some records. Jason, what did you find? So I went to the FNAC Music Store on Paulista Avenue, which is uh, sort of the business district of Sao Paulo. And I went up to a few cool-looking employees in their 20s. I figured they'd know what was up. And I asked Gabriel Viana to recommend three Brazilian musicians or bands who are selling well right now. He said female singers are hot right now in Brazil. Viana's favorite, Marisa Monte. In Marisa Monte, it's very good. Uh, the, the whole album is very good. There's one that I like too much. It's called Ainda Ben. Ainda Ben. Ainda bem que agora encontrei você Eu realmente não sei O que eu fiz pra merecer você Porque ninguém Viana's first choice was easy. Then he wanted to give his remaining choices a bit more thought. 
He seemed a bit nervous flipping through CDs. I told him I knew nothing about Brazilian music, and he seemed to feel personally responsible for my education. My interpreter, Ana Pereira, stepped in and suggested 72-year-old Roberto Carlos, known in Brazil simply as the king. You would have to take Roberto Carlos. <laughs> Roberto Carlos. Could it be? Could it be? It's a romantic, mellow-type song. You know, Roberto Carlos is the typical singer for the old ladies who are 60s. Because at the end of his shows, he brings a bunch of roses and he kisses the roses and he shows to his audience. So he's very, very mellow, very romantic. And Carlos's music is selling well again because this song is now featured on one of Brazil's most popular evening soap operas. Cara que pensa em você toda hora Que conta os segundos se você demora Que está todo tempo querendo te ver Porque já não sabe ficar sem você Very pleasant. But what if I wanted something with a little more sizzle? Fiona picked out a CD of a guy who looked like a cross between Jimi Hendrix and Bob Marley. His name, Sujarje. And Sujarje has a, a style very like a samba, a little of pop music. There is a kind of rapping, uh, some of musics. So, three recommendations. Marisa Monte, Roberto Carlos, and Sue Jarge. Mission accomplished. As I was getting ready to make my purchase, I could tell, though, that my Brazilian music guides didn't want me to leave just yet. Mm-hmm. It's a good selection. Good selection. Another store employee, Thiago Oliveira, strolled over and jumped in on the conversation. He thought Sujarje was the wrong call. Um, I don't like him, but uh, but I th- <laughs> but I think there's that kind of music uh, that he plays. It's a good sound, but I I don't like. <laughs> who, who do you like of that sound? Uh, Tom Jobim, Chico Buarque. I prefer Tom Jobim. Okay, we got a problem. Who's the, who's the guy who played? Uh, I could tell I wasn't getting out of there with just three CDs. I agreed to buy a Chico Buarque album. He's not the hottest seller right now, but he's a Brazilian classic, a lyricist known for his social commentaries. It'd sort of be like me telling them they couldn't leave the U.S. without checking out Bob Dylan or Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> it's, it's very good. You, can, you, you, you must buy it. <laughs> it's very good, too. Okay. All right. I'll take a shoot. Can you pick an album for me? To- yeah, yeah. Certainly. Hoje você é quem manda, falou, tá falado, não tem discussão, não. A minha gente hoje anda falando de lado e olhando pro chão. Viu você que inventou esse estado? E 
Brazilian singer Chico Buarque, one of the recommendations, four recommendations for Jason Margolis, who was recently in Brazil and checking out that record store in Sao Paulo there. Um, you know, Jason, it's a daunting undertaking asking Brazilians to weigh in on uh, what the must-have CDs are. It's like uh, uh, somebody who doesn't know American music coming here and saying, give me your top three. It's like, where do you even start? Right. Bob Dylan, George Jones. But he gave you some really good stuff. I like the Marissa Monche and Seu George especially. Yeah, I liked all the CDs he gave me. And actually, you know, we cut that story down, you know, here about four four minutes. But, you know, I spent a good hour with these guys. And I, I felt kind of bad. I said, okay, you know, that that's enough. But they really, really felt like this obligation that I walk out of there educated. And I thought they did a great job. I, I really like the CDs they chose. Well, Brazil is a country that has one of the most inventive and incredible music cultures uh, in the world. So, uh Great place to go. Thanks a lot. Thanks for sending me. And that wraps this edition of The World from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH. I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. Todo esse amor reprimido, esse grito contido, este samba no escuro. Você que inventou a tristeza, ora tem a fineza de desinventar.